is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. If you care to join me, um, your Red Pew Bibles, it is on page 834. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen, They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Won't you pray with me? Our God and Father, you are a God who draws near to us as we draw near to you in worship, Lord, who comes and speaks and meets us in your word, not simply, not simply as words on a page, but as your voice speaking to us. I pray that our hearts might be attentive. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, and be with me a sinner as I preach it, that we might all be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ Jesus, your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. It's not every Sunday that you get to preach on the set of a Beatles movie. Um, (laughs) I feel like that's a joke that's dated, except that it probably isn't dating me. (laughs) Um, But no, this is just wonderful. I have to say that um, before we dive into things. This is clearly a lot of work. I was actually telling Michael that, um, that if we were really on it, we'd like rise up from the middle of the stage with like smoke machines billowing out, but that would actually be terrible. But... (laughs) um, (laughs) But no, it's so good to be with you this morning. My name is Eric. I am the pastor here at Kish, and it is just a blessing to be with you. We are continuing through our sermon series on the book of Colossians, and if you haven't been with us, those sermons are online. You'd be welcome to go back and listen. But as a kid, I had an uncle who trimmed trees for a living, and I remember him talking once about how trees sometimes would just fall over, like out of the blue. Not, you know, there's no tornado, no bad driver veers into them. They would just look healthy and green and everything would seem fine. And then out of nowhere, they would just kind of collapse. And I later learned that the reason for that is something called heart rot. A fungus or a disease can invade a tree and you might not even notice it, but it invades and it starts to decay and rot out the center of the tree. And slowly that core of the tree dies and 
even though it looks fine, it reaches a point where some, some wind or something happens that normally wouldn't even bother a tree that that's big and healthy, but that because its center has kind of decayed and rotted away, the tree collapses. That image has always stuck with me. And I think it's sort of like Paul's great concern for the Colossians. Last week, we discussed how Paul is calling the Colossians to fight to keep Jesus at the center of their faith. He calls them to keep him at the center of their thinking and their hope and their righteousness. He's focused on the center because Paul is worried that they're being tempted to a kind of spiritual heart rot, a losing of the center of the gospel. And this week, in many ways, Paul continues to try to explore that theme. See, Paul isn't worried about the surface stuff for the Colossians. There are churches where Paul writes letters, and he's concerned about these kind of surface-level public obedience kind of issues. Go read 1 Corinthians sometimes if you want to see what that kind of letter is like. But the Colossians are outwardly acting in ways that seem basically moral. But Paul... He comes to them with this concern. He kind of mentions it in verse 19. The problem with these false teachers he's confronting in Colossae is that um, they have lost their connection with the head, with Jesus. That they're still trying to be the body and have the church be the body, but the source of direction and nourishment and life that they have is gone. They've contracted a kind of spiritual heart rot. And ultimately, the whole body will die because it's lost its center. So how's that happened? How have these people, outwardly still righteous, become disconnected with Jesus? Well, as Paul explores it last week, he goes on then this morning to explore it further. And according to our text this morning, I think for him it comes down to the fact that they failed to make two key distinctions. There there are several key distinctions that they need to protect their hearts from decay that they have failed to distinguish Christ from their convictions, and they have failed to distinguish righteousness from their rules. Paul's challenging them to distinguish Christ from their convictions and righteousness from their rules. So the first thing Paul challenges the Colossians to do is to distinguish Christ from their convictions. If you look at verse 16, Paul starts by telling the Colossians not to let anyone judge them by what they eat or drink, or with regards to religious festivals and special days. So apparently this group of false teachers in Colossae were coming, and they had these, these rules. Specifically, first they had these rules about diet, right? And Paul doesn't lay them out here, but in his letter to the Romans in chapter 14, it seems that he's dealing with a very similar kind of debate and group of people. And there he, he specifically lays out what it is. is So these people are coming and they're saying that Christians shouldn't eat meat or drink wine. And so it's probably a similar kind of set of teachings he's dealing with here. And at the same time, it seems they're also claiming there were certain holy days and festivals that you had to celebrate as a Christian and that you weren't really a Christian if you didn't do that. And in Romans 14, Paul also talks about those holy days. So again, it seems to be the same kind of teaching he's dealing with in the two places. And I mention that parallel because there's an interesting contrast between them. In Romans, um, it seems that these people, the people who are eating meat and drinking wine and not celebrating the holy days, those are the people that Paul kind of challenges in Romans. He comes to them, not because there's something wrong with the things that they're doing, But Paul comes to them because they're trying to persuade these other people who aren't comfortable with those things to join in. 
And so Paul in Romans is talking about helping the weaker brother and not causing him to stumble. Here, though, Paul is challenging the other group. In Rome, the problem was people who ate meat, like waving a steak under the people who didn't noses and saying, mmm, don't you want this delicious steak, right? Here, it's Paul challenging the people who are refusing to eat meat, saying, bet that steak is nice and warm, just like hell, where you're headed. Um, Or to put it another way, the problem in Romans was that people are using their freedom to hurt others, but in Colossae, the problem is people are denying that freedom to begin with. That said, the common thread in both of those letters is Paul's underlying command not to judge. In Romans 14, the command is not to pass a judgment on anyone. Here, it's the command to not let anyone pass a judgment on you. So the problem is judging people. And that requires a kind of clarification. Because don't judge me, man. That is just a hallmark of of the way everyone wants to talk about Christianity in our day, right? And that has its roots in Scripture. But it doesn't mean that the ways people use it is always biblical. Because the fact is, Scripture does tell us that there's a sort of judging that's okay to do, right? We have the right as Christians to judge sin as being sin. Places like 1 Corinthians 6 call you to judge. So, which is to say, let's say that I murder somebody, right? And I'm standing over the corpse, and let's say Michael, because he's in the front row, says, Eric, that was wrong. And I say, don't judge me, man. (laughs) Michael, in that situation, would have every right to say, no, you murdered him. And murder is wrong, so what you did is wrong. But what Scripture does forbid is certain kinds of judgment. First, it forbids hypocritical judgment, judging someone when you're guilty of the same thing, right? That's Jesus' quote about removing the plank in your eye before you remove the speck in your brother's. Second, it forbids judging people's eternal destinies, I can say that you did something wrong, but I do not get to judge whether you belong to Jesus or whether you're bound for glory or destruction. And third, which is what I think Paul is discussing here, Scripture forbids judging someone's heart based on debatable outward actions. Here's how the argument probably went for the false teachers, all right? Why, why were they not eating meat? Okay, it's, not, it's not the modern reasons, but in their world, most of the meat you would buy in the marketplace had been dedicated, sacrificed to an idol. That was part of how it got cooked, all right? And, um, and so they're saying, you're eating this meat, and that could have been dedicated to an idol. So you must be dedicating yourself to an idol. How dare you eat meat, you idolater? And what's significant is that there's a move that is happening there from an external thing they're doing to an assessment about their hearts, which is unwarranted. And we're going to talk about applying that in just a minute. But, but Paul also talks about something else in this text, another way we need to distinguish Christ from our convictions. In verse 18, Paul starts talking about this other controversy that's also happening. These same false teachers, he also says they're de- delighting in false humility— which probably doesn't, it actually probably means fasting. That word would be what you'd use for things like fasting and other kind of practices of outward kind of humbling of yourself. False humility and the worship of angels. And they go into great detail about what they have seen. And so these people, they're fasting, and they're obsessed with these ideas about having certain angels in communion with and probably spiritual visions associated with these angels, what they've seen. And what Paul's challenging there isn't just that specific teaching, but I think he's doing something similar to what he just did about the eating and drinking, which is that the false teachers, they have these ideas not just about 
outward actions, but also about spirituality and theology that they are requiring everybody to hold and that are debatable. And they're, that they're saying that disagreeing with those ideas, not practicing Christianity or thinking in those ways, also casts your, your faith and your Christianity into doubt. And in both those cases, Paul sees the issue as being the same. The problem with judging people's outward practices, according to verse 17, is that those practices are a shadow, and Jesus is the reality. Obsessing about the shadow could somehow actually make you lose sight of Jesus. And the same problem is in verse 19. Spending all your time obsessing about these specific theological and spiritual ideas can make you lose sight of Jesus. You become disconnected from him as your head, he says there. Both cases matter because they can somehow cause us to lose sight of Jesus. So what does that mean for us? Now, I don't think the question of eating meat is a particularly divisive one in our church, right? Although, I have heard some vegetarians and non-vegetarians talk about each other in ways that do probably violate Paul's commands, but, um, <laughs> but, but I don't think that's a big deal for us. And I, while lots of people here have different ideas about spirituality, I've yet to meet someone who, who wants to kick me out of the church because I don't talk to angels, um, yet at least, but, but to try to get a sense of what I think this means for us, I want to paint a picture of how I think Paul is saying the church should work and how we sometimes fail at that. Um, well, I tend to feel like power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts, absolutely. I'm actually going to have Gary, if you want to pull that up quick. This is, this is what I think Paul is trying to say, okay? So at the center of faith for Paul, there is a core set of truths and beliefs. These are the things that define us as Christians, right? There's one God in three persons. Jesus is God. We're sinners saved by Jesus' death. The Bible is God's word. Jesus rose from the dead. Those are the things that are at the core for Paul. And for him, that stuff is non-negotiable for Christians. Those are the truths you die for. Those are the truths that Paul died for. And so, in practice, that means that there are things that we want to be about as a church. We, of course, welcome people here and love them, even if they disagree about those things. But we do believe that those are the truths that define Christianity, right? So here at Kish, if you want to become a member or be baptized, those are the things that we want to talk to you about. That's the stuff that we as a church want to be gathered around. And there's a second layer of belief. And I'm calling it confession here basically just because for Kishwaki and the EPC, what we use is the Westminster Confession that kind of defines that. Um, and that is that there are ideas that don't determine whether you're a Christian or not, and about which Christians do disagree, but which the Bible does directly address, and which as a local church we kind of have to come to agreements about together in terms of how we're going to live life together. So for instance, here at Kish, we're, we're led by a group of elders, right? And then we also have a group of deacons. And some churches instead have a whole congregation that kind of votes to make leadership things. And other churches have a bishop that just kind of makes decisions for the church. And um, Christians disagree about which one of those things is biblical, right? But the Bible does address it, and you can't do all three. You can't split the church up and have a third of it have elders, and then a third of it just all vote for everything, and then there's a bishop for the other third of the church, right? We've got to come to some kind of agreement. And there's other issues like that. So how do we celebrate the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism? When we teach about the Bible, what are just the basic things that we kind of assume about how it fits together and relates to itself? The Bible addresses those issues, and they're important, but we can't confuse those with the core, right? You don't have to agree with all of that to be a Christian. 
You don't even have to agree with those things to be a member here at Kishwaukee, right? All that we would ask is people in leadership kind of share that consensus at our church so that we can kind of have a unified vision as a church. But you can be a Christian and disagree. You can be a member here and disagree. And then there are convictions. Convictions about everything else. So Paul here, if that second category is kind of Paul talking maybe about things like, you know, these theological beliefs the teachers have. The third circle is talking to them about holy days and eating and drinking. And, and again, those are based on the Bible, right? You can, we all want to develop our convictions from Scripture um, if we want to be Christians in the world. But, but those things aren't required to be a Christian. They're not clearly taught in Scripture, and they aren't required in it, but for anyone here at Kish to believe. So, for example, how do you educate your kids, right? Scripture calls us to love our kids and train them up in Jesus. And some kid, parents send their kids to public school, and some send them to private school, and some of them homeschool. And those parents are all doing that because they really believe it's the right choice, the biblical choice, and they can have strong opinions about that. But the Bible doesn't directly speak to that issue first, right? There is no verse that says, The one who sendeth his child to the school of the city, he shall be blessed. And the one who withdraweth from such schools, they shall be accursed. Nor is there a verse that says, And judgment shall be upon thee, for thou hast given thy children over to the training of heathen. Those verses aren't in the Bible, right? Scripture just doesn't directly address that question for us. And... It's something that we as a church are going to have diversity on. And lots of things are like that. Paul lists some of them in this text, right? Christians have different ideas about food. Some Christians drink in moderation and others choose not to. And there's so many others. Christians dress differently. We dress differently for Sunday morning worship. We um, watch different kinds of movies and listen to different kinds of music. We vote different ways. We're fans of different sports teams, which I realize might not seem like a moral issue, but growing up in Nebraska with the Cornhuskers, it certainly was. Um, And that doesn't mean you can just do whatever without thinking about it. The Lord is calling each of us to pursue Christ-likeness in life, and that means that we need to think about those issues and form convictions, but we cannot divide over them. We cannot require everybody to match our convictions or pass a judgment on them when they don't. And Kish as, a ch- Kish as a church should not try to decide those issues for people. We can't. In fact, in many ways, we should hope to see diversity in our church on those issues because there's diversity in Jesus' body, and so we would want to see that here well. But that, all of that is because there's this underlying tendency that we can have um, to take those issues from the outer ring and move them into the core, right? Sometimes in some churches, it's explicit, We say that all Christians should think this thing about this topic and and, and then assume that if you don't, you're not a Christian. Sometimes I think it can be more internal, right? I mean, I won't say it, but I just, I kind of wonder if you could really believe in Jesus and think that thing. And that urge, again, can come from a really good place. Saying that confession um, and conviction are not the core doesn't mean that they aren't important. It doesn't mean that there are even... There are even maybe right answers about those things, okay? There probably are on some of them. God does have opinions about how churches should be governed or how Christians should approach things like voting or drinking or dress or education. We can think and pray and study and really feel like we've got the right answer, and we might even be right, but no matter how sure that we are that we're right, 
it's still dangerous to move those outside things into the core. And here's why. It's wrong because the more stuff that we move into the core, the more it tends to push the stuff in the core out. When we add things to Jesus, we often start to subtract from Jesus himself. Here's what I mean. I feel the weight of all the controversial issues that Paul is kind of touching on this morning. As, as a note, this is one of those sermons that, you know, you got to address because the text is in the book you're preaching through, but I know it's touching on some hard stuff for people. But let's use, let's use something that I hope we don't have any controversy about, okay? Let's say that, um, let's say that I developed the conviction that if you were really a Christian, you would wear fedoras, Okay? That the fedora is clearly the most spiritual hat, that it's shameful to, you know, expose the nakedness of your head, and that other hats are either too plain or ostentatious. Let's say that Christians have to wear fedoras, but it's, which is silly, but bear with me, okay? If I really started to believe that all Christians had to wear fedoras, I would run into this tension. After all, there are lots of people who say they love Jesus, but wear Panama hats, or flat caps, or baseball hats, or no hats at all. Um... But they really seem to believe in Jesus and the Trinity and the resurrection and all of that stuff. And at the same time, there are good people, fedora-wearing people, right, outside of the church that don't believe in any of that Jesus stuff. And so I start to think, man, if fedoras are really important, maybe this Jesus thing can't be as big a deal as I thought it was. Maybe what we should really focus on is the fedoras. And that is exactly how churches lose the gospel. It's not fedoras, sure, but they take something, some beliefs about outward behavior or some convictions or whatever, and they slip them into the core, and over time, those things erode the place of Jesus at the center. And eventually, he gets pushed aside. It might not even be a conscious pushing aside of him, but it happens in our hearts. Christ brooks no rivals, and so when you start trying to add something to Jesus— you end up subtracting from Jesus in order to make that thing fit beside him. So Paul wants the Colossians to distinguish between Christ and the core things of Christianity and their own convictions. He wants them to do this because otherwise it endangers the gospel. There's another thing Paul warns about too in this text. It's kind of related, but there's also a different spin to it, and that's that he also wants the Colossians to distinguish righteousness from their rules. He wants them to distinguish righteousness from their rules. So Paul challenges the Colossians again in verse 20. Why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? And we might ask, what kinds of rules? He summarizes them in verse 21. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. In verse 22, he says they're based on merely human commands and teachings. In verse 23, he says that they can seem spiritual, but they ultimately can't do anything to restrain the flesh. So what is Paul talking about? Well, first, it's pretty clear he's talking about religious rules, right? Um, He talks about them as having an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed worship and false humility. He means they're rules that look really spiritual, and they seem to be rules about external actions. That's why, as verse 22 says it, they're all about things that are destined to perish with use. But still, what exactly does Paul have in mind? Well, here's what I think. One of the key points on which Jesus disagreed with the Pharisees was on the rules that they set up for people. 
Here's what happened, okay? The Pharisees would come across these commands in Scripture that were commands. For example, you should keep the Sabbath, and you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. And they'd say, well, how do we make sure that people don't work? And so they thought about it, and so they said, well, we need to come up with a list of things that are work first. And so they came up with a list of things that are work. And one of the things that they came up with, for example, was making bricks, right? Which in that day and age was something you actually did. You didn't just buy bricks. But they said, well, making bricks, that seems like something that's work. And then they say, well, how do we make sure that people don't make bricks? And they say, well, to make bricks in this day, you would mix dirt and water together, right, to make mud. And so we want to make... Okay, long story short, I'm not going to walk through the whole process. In the end, what they decided was one of the rules was that you had to spit on a rock on Sundays, or Saturdays in their case. Because if you spit in the dirt, then the spit and the dirt together would make mud, right? Which was kind of like making bricks, and that would be work. So one of the rules that they had if you wanted to be a good religious person, was that you had to spit on rocks on Sunday. (laughs) Um, And Jesus opposed that because while God's law is from him, these rules they were making up weren't. You can't say, thus says the Lord, thou shalt not spit in the dirt on Sunday. Okay? You can't because God doesn't. And I think Paul shares Jesus' concern. Indeed, perhaps that's exactly what was happening with these issues of food and drink. Paul mentioned earlier, idolatry is wrong, right? And the false teachers are worried about idolatry, and that's a good thing. But the rules that they make to try to protect people from idolatry go beyond Scripture's commands. That you couldn't eat meat because maybe it was sacrificed to an idol, and maybe that will cause your heart to be idolatrous. And Paul highlights the problem with this approach. It's wrong because to set up these rules actually endangers true righteousness. That's the point of verse 23. We make up rules to try to keep people from sinning, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't actually keep them from sinning. Why not? Well, first, because we don't have the divine help of God in keeping rules that we make up. All right? Righteousness, true righteousness, is something that takes the Holy Spirit's work to help us achieve. But there is no promise that the Spirit will help me keep commands that God doesn't give. And that's why Paul faults these as being merely human commands and teachings. They're not from God. And that's a huge problem because if we're focused on the rules and we don't have God's help in keeping them, we can fail to keep them, right? And because we fail in that moment, then we can give up. We can feel like we've already crossed the line into sin and so we don't even fight when true righteousness is on the line. More than that... Paul's issue is that making lots of human rules can actually distract us from God's commands. It can actually breed sin. This is why they lack value in restraining our sensual indulgence, as he puts it. This is Jesus' issue with the Pharisees. He says, you tithe from your dill and your cumin, right? Like you're supposed to tithe the increase of your fields, and they're like keeping track of you know, their, their little herb garden that they have in their windowsill, and they're tithing from that. He says, you do that... You don't spin in the dirt on Sunday, but you've lost sight of the weightier things of the law. You don't love your neighbors or honor your parents or hear the Father when he speaks to you. You've become so focused on being good rule followers that you've lost sight of God's call to do good in the world. I think it's like this. Remember in college, there was this girl that I knew who wasn't a believer. She had no interest in church or Jesus and this whole history of pain and abuse that lay behind that. But anyway, a mutual friend convinced this girl to go to church with them. Um, And I only heard about it after the fact. Uh, But here's what happened. The church our mutual friend went to was known in the town I went to college in for being a church that had a lot of rules. All right? 
Um, and they go, and they're getting ready to go into worship out in the foyer. And this girl, who is not a believer, was standing there with her friends. Um, this lady from church comes up to this girl and starts telling her off because her shirt has sequins on it. And apparently sequins are an ostentatious and immodest display of wealth. Um, and this girl ended up leaving church, crying, and had no interest in coming back, right? And needless to say, she was a lot further from Jesus and his church after that than before. And that is exactly what can happen with our rules. Somehow this lady had lost sight of the biblical call to hospitality and love and kindness and gentleness, and the reason was because instead all she could see was sequins, because she had embraced a set of rules based on visible perishing things That ultimately caused her to lose sight of the invisible, eternal things that mattered. And as a church, that is a good reminder for us as well. It should challenge us in terms of the rules we make for others. I don't know that any of us are really fixated on sequins, but we can easily form certain expectations about how people should dress or talk or act and then impose those rules on the people around us, even though they aren't required by the Bible. And look, I don't mean biblical commandments in that, right? It's easy in this conversation to struggle to make that distinction. We have to make it, right? The the Bible does call us to modesty, right? We're not supposed to ostentatiously show off wealth in the way that we dress together. The lady at the church wasn't wrong about the need for modesty. But what the Bible doesn't give is specific guidelines. It doesn't discuss sequins or types of pants or ties or suits or length of dresses. Those are the questions that each of us has to grapple with for ourselves with God. And we should grapple with them, but we can't decide them for the people around us. More than that, Paul's words should remind us to always be sure our rules aren't distracting us from the call to real righteousness. We always need to seek the deeper things of Christian obedience. Love and purity and hope and peace. Growth in righteousness is always something internal, at a heart level, that then spills out into our actions, not the other way around. It's actually part of why making rules is so dangerous. Not because we can't keep them, but because sometimes we can And that's what happened to the Pharisees. Because they kept the rules they had made, they thought they had arrived. They weren't trying to grow anymore. The kind of righteousness Scripture holds out for us, though, is never a place that you can arrive at. Have you ever thought about that? Not in this life. It is the example of Christ. Perfect obedience. Perfect love. And that is not a destination that you can reach tomorrow or before you die. And that's why we need the gospel. But that is also a good thing because it means that we can always grow. Indeed, as Paul's picture of the body in verse 19 shows us, it's this picture of a growing body. Growing up into Christ with God always helping it grow. Righteousness is always an upward call towards Christ-likeness, but our rules can just become a checklist that we complete and then think that we're done. One last note as we close. Over and over in our text, Paul subtly criticizes the false teachers and the things that they're doing because of this underlying issue he sees in them of pride. They have a false humility, he says. They're puffed up with idle notions. They act like they're wise. In many ways, this is the thing that lies behind Paul's whole critique. 
And that is why we need to hear this challenge at heart. Because as much as the things Paul might attack might seem like wisdom and spirituality, they're ultimately rooted in our pride. When I put my beliefs at the core, that is an artifact of arrogance. I have failed to draw a distinction between my clear hope in Christ and my less clear opinions about issues that surround him. I might even be right in my opinions, but I am not God, and to pretend like my thinking belongs at the same level as those core things that he calls us to embrace as Christians is pride. And when I make rules instead of seeking Christ's righteousness, I am also feeding into that pride. I am declaring, thus says, with the force of God, only saying things that God did not say. I'm making a set of rules that I can follow rather than acknowledging an upward call that I could never reach. Which is why at the end of the day, what this text ultimately calls us back to is Jesus. It calls us back to the heart of the matter. Jesus undoes all of our pride. He offers us a salvation by faith in him, regardless of how right or how wrong we are about our considered opinions. He saves people who believe all kinds of things about issues of confession or conscience, which means the things I believe don't earn some special favor from him. He saves us and calls us into perfect Christ-likeness, a calling we could never reach in this life, and that is a good thing because it also keeps us humble and ever trusting in Christ, who is our righteousness for the present and provides us with the righteousness we need in the journey to pursue it. So our calling is to attend once more to Jesus. Stop looking at just the external things and instead gaze at the core. Stop seeing only the bark and the leaves and ask about the heart of the tree. It is only in this, in making Christ the first thing and keeping him the first thing, that Christianity truly lies. Pray with me. God and Father, I acknowledge the many ways that I fail to live up to this calling in my own heart, the ways that I can judge people and the ways that I can um, set my, the things I think on the same level as the things that you teach. Lord, I pray that you would humble me and humble us all. Destroy our pride in us that we might look up from that place of humility and see the cross raising up in our view. See Jesus more clearly and hope in him fully. Pray these things in your name. Amen. I just want to briefly note here, because this is maybe the first time I feel like we've had to tread on some really controversial ground in the text that we've been provided with. Do know as well that I value deeply discussing things with people. There's this Midwestern thing, right, where people disagree with each other and they don't say anything for 20 years. Um, <laughs> that, that is just not helpful, so I would welcome if any of you want to discuss um, this text or other things, always. My door is open. My email inbox is open. Um, You can get a hold of me. Uh, I would appreciate that. But stand together with us. Let's sing praise to Christ our Lord.